Today's Desert Ranch podcast is brought to you by Roar Zufari, located in Vienna, Virginia. Known as Fairfax County's largest petting zoo, Roar Zufari's goal is to connect families and animals and create awareness, understanding of wildlife, and the environment in which it lives. The 30-acre family-owned zoo is located at 1228 Hunter Mill Road in Vienna, Virginia. Visitors are offered a Zufari tour, walking tour, camel rides, and the zoo features a large walk-in parakeet aviary, magical butterfly gardens, and numerous memorable opportunities to get close to animals of all sizes. On the web at www.roarsufari.com, also on Instagram and Facebook. The Desert Ranch Podcast is brought to you from Indian Springs Working Ranch, located in the beautiful Pelencio Wilderness Mountains of eastern Arizona. Indian Springs Working Ranch provides guests with an authentic working ranch experience. Guests will herd cattle on horseback, repair fences, and live as real ranch hands do. Check it out at www.indianspringsworkingranch.com. Also brought to you by Our Lazy J Wildlife Ranch, an education and conservation breeding ranch in Eager, Arizona. Get up close and personal with more than 56 species from around the world. Encounter sloth and lemur, cheetah and clouded leopard, as well as many types of hooved, feathered, and scaled wildlife on the web at ourlazyjranch.com. Welcome to the Desert Ranch Podcast with Vanessa Rohr. Vanessa and her guests will give you some insight into the lives of those who are keeping us from being naked, hungry, and thirsty. Now, here is your host, Vanessa Rohr. Our guest today on the Desert Ranch Podcast is James Badman. Thank you so much for joining us, James. And um, what? No problem. Thank you for having me. Yeah. What, what kind of animals do you have inside your house that you're taking care of right now? Um, well, baby season seemed to always start a little early, uh, here. Um, uh, so, um, for babies, we've had a, a litter of warthogs, some capybaras, um, and, um, we have some that are getting ready to head out to a zoo next week. So we're, um, we brought some in for the vets to take a look at, to get their house certificates ready. Um, a uh, three-banded armadillo and a, a few other um, birds that will be uh, uh, shipping out next week. So you don't have anything going no. on at all. That's <laughs> that seems like quite a quite a bit of work, right. and you guys probably aren't getting much sleep. <laughs> when were your capybaras born? They were born the first of December or December second. So they're a few months old, actually. So okay, um, they're um, I leave soon too. And, uh, um, yeah, they were, uh, kind of an early litter, you know, they're, um, uh, they tend to like the spring, you know, that have their litter, but it was, it was cold. Uh, but, um, we have a good mom and, you know, good barn. And so they, uh, she's done a great job taking care of them, but they've, um, now that they're weaned, they're, they're getting ready to go to another facility as well soon. That's great. Um, we have a, a new brand new letter this week of Capybara and our mom is a great mom about 50% of the time. So the, this winter spring letter she usually has, she almost always uh, drops them and walks away and um, she does a really good job in the summertime, but this time of year, I, I guess it's, she, she just can't uh, handle it. Maybe she's got a little seasonal something going on there, but so I, we've been up every two hours or I've been up every two hours most of the week. Um, but they're just, we're starting to stretch that out a little bit now and, um, they're all doing good. So yeah, baby season and no matter what industry animal industry. Oh yes. (laughs) How old are your baby warthogs? They're five weeks, six weeks now. So, um, they're, Three, four weeks. So yeah, they're, they're a few weeks younger than that. Um, and they're starting to get some solid food, which is making Kirsten happy. So, so you can spread the feedings out. What a champ. How many, how long have you guys been doing this? Um, man, we've been raising animals, um, probably, I mean, I've been raising since I was a kid and, uh, uh, Kirsten kind of married into it and 
and uh, has been the, the the baby mama, you know, taking care of everything um, that we produce and and kind of doing that full time probably the last um, I'd say probably five six years um, she's been doing that and um, we kind of ramped up with the mammals um, about eight or nine years ago the larger mammals we. Um, most of my work I've known for is with tortoises, um, and, um, uh, birds. And then, um, uh, we started, uh, uh, working more with mammals like about eight, nine years ago. And, um, you know, it's it just, there, there's so many animals to work with. It, you just don't go back, you know, it's so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys do a tremendous job. I'm curious to know, like, um, and, and I love that you indicated that you started as a, as a youngster because um, right, right now, like at our zoo, I, I love seeing young kids come in and that are super excited. And I think for our industry's sake, we've got to, you know, continue to nurture that um, and excitement and enthusiasm. And uh, tell me a little bit about when you were a youngster and, and what were you raising? You know, I, I think it was, uh, I started with hamsters and, and guinea pigs. And, uh, um, I've always had a lot of, um, poultry and birds. Um, uh, my dad always would tell me he was so happy when I moved out, his electric bill and water bill went down because, you know, I always had brooders going, incubators going, um, uh, you, you know, there's, there, there's like animal people and then there's like animal people. And I've always been one of those that, you know, just ha- I've had a, um, a deep interest in breeding, um, raising and breeding animals and, and have done it, you know, work with pheasants and, and game birds and, and, um, have always had a passion for tortoises. Um, some of the tortoises I have today were some that I had when I was, um, I worked for a, a pet store as a kid and, and, uh, um, you know, in high school and, and I have some of those leopard tortoises that I'd gotten as hatchlings. Um, I was probably 17, 18, you know, and still have two of the females today. That's awesome. And that's a testament to the superior care that you can provide those animals. What's the life expectancy of a leopard tortoise? You know, they, it seems over all over the board, you know, I always hear 60, 80 years. Um, I would guess between, you know, um, uh, um, probably 40 to 60 years um, in, in captivity. Um, um, you know, I'm, see, I've, I've had them about, 30 years, I'll be 49. So I've had them since I was 18. Um, and you know, they're still, still going, you know, and, and, um, uh, you know, they, they like these warmer days, you know, that, uh, we're having today and out lounging in the sun, um, like most of the tortoises and, um, you know, they see us out and they're running us down, hoping for some food, some lettuce and stuff today. And would you say, do they like people in general or do they recognize you? Uh, you know, people always think of tortoises as like no personality, you know, it's like, oh, it's like having a pet rock. Right. You know, and um, uh, they, they, they really do um, know and figure out who um, feeds them. When my daughters were younger, um, they would uh, carry uh, food out in buckets and man, they would see my daughters in those buckets and they knew, I mean, they were running to the walls. Um, and, and kind of stepping over each other, you know, trying to, to, to get the lettuce. And, you know, my daughters would love, you know, kind of hand feeding them, you know, carrots or leaves of greens and stuff. And, and, uh, and they, they knew it. So I, I think they, you know, they, they do have personalities. They do uh, recognize people. They um, uh, for sure. And, um, uh, you know, they're, they're still today one of my favorite animals. I enjoy working with them. I would say um, reptiles and tortoises weren't anything that I grew up with, but since I've been in the field, in the zoo field, I've definitely have um, affection for them. And, and even snakes um, for the longest time, I really struggled with snakes, but mind you, I don't, I'm fine with rodents. I'm fine with spiders, millipedes, worms. Um, But, but snakes, I, it took me a while to warm up, but um, I, yeah, I, I know what you mean in terms of, of character and personality and um, you know, they, they're just uh, wonderful animals and, and it's great that we have people like yourself. Um, of course, zoos are great, but you know, without people that are breeding these sorts of things, we, we don't have education collections and 
um, you know, the opportunities for people to experience what we experience, then would be very few and far between. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's, it's great that people get exposure to animals um, um, as much as possible. And, and um, whether that's, you know, getting the opportunity to, to keep a pet of their own or, or visiting a facility, you know, um, uh, I think we're getting a little disconnected from nature now. And, and um, it's, you know, it's kind of saddening, you know, when you mentioned, you know, about getting um, the younger generation involved and, and um, it's something that Kirsten and I have just been, you know, kind of a, a side passion is, is working with the, the 4-H and FFA kids and, you know, trying to make sure there's a connection to nature raising animals and, and this industry because it, um, you know, you, you feel like it's fading away, you know, and at, at times. And so, um, and, and people love to come and see the babies and interact with the babies and, and, um, um, you know, it, it, it gives a chance to share what we do. You know, you and I have been in business uh, quite a little while. And in my opinion, it seems like there's been a a big change or a shift from, you know, back in the 80s, for example, everybody seemed to get much more excited and celebrate breeding. Um, You know, of course, there's lots of things that we've learned over the course of time, but it seems like there's almost been a like a crackdown in breeding um, with certain trade groups, for example, and, um, trying to determine what can be bred and who can breed it. It seems like it's gotten very political. Yeah, it, it certainly has. Um, and, and I agree with you in the time that um, I've been in this industry, you know, it used to be really celebrated when, and, and huge accomplishments for, for raising some of the rare stuff. And now it's like, you don't even want to mention that you raised, you know, at times, but um, it's, you know, there, there's multiple reasons to be raising animals, you know, um, there's the whole food and fiber side, which, you know, in, in agriculture and, and raising a lot of the domestic animals. Um, and, and even a lot of those domestic animals, just the sheer pets, you know, and, and, um, you know, um, like I, like I said, you know, there wasn't an opportunity when I wasn't a kid where I wasn't working with something, raising something. And, and, um, you know, and it's, it's, because people raise stuff, it was available to me, you know, and then, um, you know, some of the rare animals that, that we work with that, you know, we're fortunate enough to have um, a, a zoo license as well. And, and um, we work under several permits um, with some of the, the rare animals and, you know, it's, there, there's a conservation side of it. And I know people will argue um, whether captive breeding, ex pseudo captive breeding is, um, um, conservation by any means, but I think it's been proven. And, and, you know, I just saw an article today about, um, bongos that were, were bred and, and reintroduced back in the wild. We've seen it with, um, multiple species of orcs now, um, and, you know, that were, were being raised, um, you know, in the different ranches down in Texas, um, and within the zoos. Um, and, um, y- y- you know, it, it's, um, it, there, I, I really do believe there's a, a, a conservation value when you um, raise even these, you know, smaller exotic animals, the, the lizards, the snakes, the tortoises. Um, the bottom line is there's a demand for it and, um, you know, people want to have them as, as pets. And um, in, in my mind, it's always better when it comes out of a farm out of Arizona where, where, we're, where we are located than these animals being um, taken out of the wild, you know. One, they're, they're more suited to captive life. They've been born in captivity, um, but they also, um, they're not drawing any more off the wild population. And um, that in itself, in, in my mind, is conserving the wild populations. So. Right. And just the level of knowledge that you have been able to build and, and people like you have been able to build, whether it's um, an ex- rare or exo- rare or endangered species or um, you know, something very common, but that, that knowledge base without people breeding and, you know, learning to care for these animals, it just wouldn't be there. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's, I mean, you, you know, you and I have had a lot of conversations about a lot of different species and there's some, um, uh, you, you know, some, some of like the armadillos and a few other species that are, are just really difficult to raise. And, um, and, and um, not only, you know, 
getting them to reproduce, but getting them to care for their offspring. And if they don't care for their offspring, you know, raising the baby, you know, hand raising the baby. And, and um, you know, some of the species of armadillos we work with, you know, all three of those are hard. <laughs> and then, you know, you're, you're working so hard to be successful. And if you aren't, they won't be in captivity any longer. We won't see them for multiple reasons, but um, now it's, it's to maintain the species we have in captivity. Um, it's important to, to try to continue those lines and breed them. Absolutely. How do you think this stigma um, against breeding, and, and I see this in, I mean, to an extent in production agriculture, but also in, you know, cat dog breeding. Um, and, and as you were mentioning, you know, the, the breeding of, of exotics, how do you think that's harming conservation? Harming con- conservation? Um, Just the stigma. Um, I don't Oh, the stigma, um, because the demand will always be there. If it's not produced, um, uh, will be a draw of the wild population at some time. And, and it's a, it's a conversation I, I, I remember having with, with folks at Fish and Wildlife and they're, you know, they were, they were, um, telling me about, um, birds that were um, being exported and, and parrots specifically, and um, to Thailand and, and into the Asian markets from the U.S. They were like, you know, um, in the U.S. we've gotten so efficient and good at breeding parrots and, and these birds are being exported. And, um, you know, they had, they had they did have a, like a negative tone on her, um, like it was a bad thing. And, and I said to them, you know, um, or to this agent I was dealing with, wouldn't it, isn't it better that they're, they're coming out of the U.S. than out of their home ranges or being caught out of the wild? And, you know, I mean, that is a, you know, and especially a lot of the rare ones, you know, I, I think there should be, um, you know, tracking of them, but better, you know, tracking oversight, but also um, open trade in them um, for those that are, are legal so that, you know, it, it, it lessens that demand on them. And, and the reverse is happening. You know, it's, it's an absolute clamping down on all um, uh, species and, um, you know, as we're seeing less and less of those captive bred wildlife permits get issued and we're seeing um, um, less people having them and more people going, you know what, you know, they're, they're just so fed up with anything that's involved in, in, in having to raise them. It's like, you know what, let's just move on to another species that we don't have this hassle. And, and in the end, I, I think it does hurt the, the wild population and it will also hurt it, you know, when, when we can't see it anymore, you know, when, when it disappears from the zoos, when it disappears from, from the animal trade. And I mean, there's countless species that we used to be able to see as kids that are gone now. And, and I think, you know, we can see videos of them. We can look online and, and do it, but I mean, the, the appreciation you get from seeing the animal is, um, you know, seeing a living animal and seeing its behaviors and stuff is, is um, just more profound than, than watching a video. So I believe so. least. Right. And, and it strikes me, you know, the United States, um, you know, starting back with Teddy Roosevelt and John Moore, they came up with this American model, North American model of conservation, which essentially is conservation through commerce. And I, I feel like as a country, we're so self, so um, short-sighted rather, and lacking this self-reflection as a country with what that was able to achieve. And, and, you know, definitely this is a, a wild application, but it allowed elk to be, you know, back in the forest in, in Arizona, um, the bison to return from near extinction. And, and so all very um, positive success stories that required, the, um, you know, this private public partnership. And, and I think, you know, our, as a country and um, politicians and, and citizens alike, we really need to open our eyes and look less myopically and at the bigger picture and recognize uh, the contributions that um, we've historically made in conservation with private breeding. And um, we should be doing more of that and not less. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I, I, and I think, you know, there's countless, um, uh, you know, stories. And again, you know, you see it with the orcs and a lot of the, the hoofstock, especially, um, 
where you know they're being saved by the ranches and, and they they have the sheer numbers they have the genetics they have you know uh, better herds because they were managed at a larger scale um and and you need that because they they again have the property to do it and, and manage them and stuff um uh and um um, it reminds me of that book um, by the Barkers, uh, the, was it The Living Ark? Um, uh, and it, and it, you know, it talks about all the, you know, things like, you know, uh, you know our ranches and, and just what we've been discussing and, and you know, here, uh, um, you know, these animals are being saved and managed and, and, and again, countless um, fish species, you know, that are in aquaculture that, you know, are functionally extinct or, you know, but they're, they're commercially available in the fish trade, you know, and, and um, um, all because someone had an interest in, in raised them, you know. Absolutely. And, and a clearly, you know, you're in a very urban setting, so you're not um, going to be raising ADAX and Oryx, but I think the species that you're working with are still just as important. Tell me a little bit about the challenges of being, um, you know, I, I guess you're the equivalent of an urban gardener, but you're you're doing that and in, in that with animals on a very small scale. So what kind of challenges have you run into, um, you know, being in the setting that you're at? Um, it's uh, it's becoming more interesting now. You know, I, um, I when I moved to where I am located now, I, I, was, I was kind of far out, but I always had to maintain um, uh um, a, a reasonable dis- or, uh, closeness to, I, I work for the university, you know, for Arizona state university. So I always had to kind of maintain a reasonable, um, uh, closeness so I could, um, you know, commute to it. And, and so I, you know, was in, um, uh, one of the suburbs of Phoenix. So that, in Mesa and, and, um, you know, it, I, I was kind of out there, you know, for the longest time on a County Island and, and, you know, we had a, a couple acres and, and yeah, I'm a, you know, considered a urban farmer, you know, and, and, you know, on the, on the outskirts have, have a couple acres and, and, you know, I, I looked for species that, you know, I could do on the scale of the land that I had. So yeah, addicts and, and a lot of stock were not as available to me. Um, and, and there wasn't as, as many neighbors and, and now, um, it is becoming highly developed and, um, uh, um, and, and we're, we're meeting a lot of new neighbors and, um, and so, um, uh, that that's becoming more and more, you know, it makes us, um, uh, you know, really think about, you know, the species that we work with because, um, you know, they're, they're kind of, they always refer to the term as attractive nuisance, you know, they, they, they draw people in because they want to see them you know, when you have, you know, the, the warthogs and the kangaroos and different oddities. And even though they're behind, you know, they're, they're behind secured fences, we have block walls and I run dogs and um, it's still, you know, people are curious and they, they want to know, you know, what people do out in these different areas. And, and so, you know, we, we try to choose and then obviously, well, I, you know, my dogs are barking now and, and my conure has been going off, uh, uh, you know, as more and more people, come out and they're, they're around us, you know, um, screaming parrots and cranes calling and stuff like that tend to not, um, you know, it, it never offends us, but, you know, it tends not to be everyone's thing, you know? And, and um, so we, we've always gotten well, got, got along well with our neighbors. Like I said, most of them think it's pretty cool what we do, uh, but it is becoming more and more pop, populated around us as the more and more houses, you know, it used to be, a house every two, three acres now, you know, they're, they're putting, you know, I think this new development that's going out by us, it's like 24 homes on eight acres, you know, and it's just, they're starting to get packed in, you know, I said, well, right. They'll be complaining. We were known for an agriculture area and, and you're, you get nervous because, um, uh, you, you know, it, it's always cool until, you know, there's a little smell or flies or, you know, something, you know, Right. Something not very convenient. And I definitely see that, you know, my husband's family's from the Buckeye area and um, they just recently sold their hay farm that, uh, and, and it's, there's, I don't believe there's plans to develop it immediately, but you know, it's coming and, and I know um, 
you know, the, the people that have moved out to the Buckeye area where there is development, many of them are intolerant of tractors and uh, smells and um, all the stuff that comes with agriculture. And, and is that, um, that brings us to the Arizona Animal Coalition that um, you very bravely and um, I guess, you know, very bravely, you've put forward a lot of effort in getting that organized. And I, for one, am, am very grateful to have that sort of a coalition and I love how diverse it is. And um, tell us and, and our listeners a little bit about the Arizona Animal Coalition, who's in it, and, and how it came to be. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so probably about three or four years ago, um, we had, um, yeah, it was about four years ago, um, we had some potential rule changes coming forward. Um, um, every five years, Arizona Game and Fish does the, the um, Article 4 live animal um, uh, rule review. And in doing so, um, decided to make a recommendation that all um, endangered species um, be moved to restricted wildlife. Um, actually, I believe it was endangered and threatened species. So that encompassed about everything a lot of what was in the trade, you know, from all our parrots. Um, um, at this time, a lot of the macaws were being listed on the ESA. Um, uh, um, lizards, tortoises, I mean, the list would have knocked out so many species. And if they get on the restricted wildlife, we wouldn't be able to work with them. And it was something that I had been monitoring and, um, you, you know, we, we like, we were like, this is bad. This is, you know, the way it's worded. It would, it would, make so much, uh, so many species restricted, restricted wildlife. I was reaching out to, um, pet stores. I, I own a pet store as well. My wife and I have a pet store, um, um, uh, and, um, we're partners in a, a reptile show. And so, um, through the community, um, started networking, you know, folks, do you, do you understand this, what this is and what's going on? We rallied together. Um, we were fortunate to have some, um, uh, national help from USARC, um, from AFA, uh, American Federation of Aviculture, um, OPA, you know, because this wasn't a, this was one of the first times it wasn't a, a bird or, you know, aviculture's problem. It wasn't a reptile herpticulture's problem. It wasn't the agriculture problem. This was an everybody problem. And, um, and it was a, a huge wake up call. It really scared people um, because a lot of us, you know, our livelihood encircles the animal industry. And um, this would have been horrifically damaging. Um, one of our, um, one of my mentors and friends, um, as, as he was to many of us, uh, Mickey Olson, um, he and I would talk all the time and, and talk about politics. And, and um, he introduced us to, or introduced me to a, a lobbyist that um, said, you know, we, we can help you. Um, and um, so we, we kind of banded together, collected some money and, um, hired a lobbyist and, and resolved the issue. Um, shortly after that, there was another issue as well as some other stuff in that, that article four review, um, that wasn't really palatable. Um, and, and so we continued to work on it. The, the question became, you know, um, Mickey, Mickey and I talked about it a lot, you know, we, we were reactive, um, running from fire to fire, you know, um, as these bills were coming forward. Um, and, and so it's like, what, what can we do to, um, you know, get ahead of this and, and be proactive instead of reactive. And, um, so we, we had this idea of, of having a, a dinner, um, reaching out to all ends of the industry from, you know, pet trade distributor, the zoos. Um, I mean, everybody was invited and, um, uh, Mickey hosted it at, at wildlife world zoo. Um, and, um, brought, I mean, if you were in the industry, you were invited and, um, we, we, um, uh, brought everyone in and had this dinner and, um, uh, you know, and, and, and announced that we were going to try to form a coalition and do just um, what I described, you know, be proactive, um, hire a lobbyist, watch for um, uh, dangerous bills as they were um, 
being drafted and, and um, um, put into either the, the um, uh, state legislature or um, uh, during any of the, the game and fish reviews. Um, and, and that's what was the foundation of the, of the organization. Um, so it's the Arizona Animal um, uh, Care and Business um, Coalition. And um, it, it just, it's a long name. We usually call it the Animal uh, animal coalition, animal care coalition, um, but um, we were trying to encompass everybody, and it does. Um, we we have um, uh, three, four zoos, um, distributors, um, breeders, um, hobbyists, uh, pet shops. Um, you know, and, and everyone contributes. We we tried to find parity in the um, um, in the dues um, because. Um, lobbyists are, you know, it, it's a healthy contract and, and we had to do some fundraising and, and um, we're on our second year um, and it, you know, we're, we're working with our lobbyists so that, um, you know, we, we can be proactive, watch for bills when they come in. And in our second year, we're making recommendations before they're, these bills, you know, as they're, as they're hitting committee, making recommendations and most of the time, um, you know, they, 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 our recommendations have been accepted, you know, unless it's pretty, you know, a, a bill being presented to really end the industry, you know, and they're not looking to, to work with us at all. But um, that we, the representatives and, and the state senators have now, are now looking at us. They, they were, you know, it, it, it was super helpful to have, prominent people like Mickey that are, are, are prominent members of the community um, to, to um, um, you know, start these introductions. And, you know, he would always say to me, you know, we need to make friends before we need these friends. And, and, um, uh, and, and so we, we, um, we've been out, we we're meeting people, working with people, meeting with representatives. And um, um, we, um, um, have been working, uh, to, uh, uh, you know, stay on top of it. And, and, um, you know, like I said, we're in our second year, we're, we're recognized as a, a, a resource within the, um, animal industry and the community. Um, a lot of times now when a bill's even, um, they're even thinking of putting it forward. They, they check with us to see if they, if we're okay with the language. Um, again, there was a bill earlier this year. It, it wasn't meant to be a, a, a dangerous or bad bill, but the language in it, the way it was written would have been extremely harmful for us. Um, so we, we, we really um, try to catch those early because that's when you can be the most effective. Yeah. And I just can't say enough for the um, fellow members and our Arizona Animal Coalition. I mean, they are, as you mentioned, zoos and pet shops and breeders, but we also have uh, bison ranchers, dairies, um, egg producers, and in in some circ- some states, um, you know, those people can sometimes show up at odds with each other or, you know, not recognize how much in common there is. And so I, I just feel so very fortunate that, you know, my fellow Arizonans are sticking together in this way. And, and um, we were able to work with our uh, state farm bureau this year on a resolution that would... Um, indicate the Farm Bureau supported what we were doing as well. Yeah, and that's, um, it was another, you know, huge accomplishment is, is when, you know, we were a, a very kind of loose-knit organization up front. And, and I mean, now we're a pretty, um, you know, recognizable coalition. But, you know, initially, and, and, and you, you need to reach out and make friends and, and um there again, there was a, you know, we saw a, a, um, the potential for, um, uh, some of the cities in Arizona have some contracts, um, with the local, um, the, uh, AZ HSUS and in those contracts, um, you know, they're, they're basically deputized and, and can really cause problems and, and, um, you know, these things happen and they're, they're meant to be good things, you know, it's meant to, um, 
you know, to, to really um, provide help, these contracts were to provide help when, when the animal owner wasn't um, there in, in some sort of incident or, um, you know, the, the, an animal was found or, you know, needed help and the animal, uh, the animal's owner wasn't present. And it's morphed into something it, it, it isn't. And so we, you know, we, we've been working with the different organizations to say, hey, you know, we understand, you know, they, they can do good. But in instances, especially with, with exotic animals, where, where the expertise lies with um, people within our coalition, um, uh, in, in, in many, many cases, um, or, um, you know, we, we, if the animal's owner is present, there should be due process and making sure that that isn't getting lost because um, it, it was coming across that um, there, there was um, a, the ability to take that away from, from people and, um, and basically push an, an animal rights agenda. And that's what these contracts were not supposed to be. And, and so and I think um, the- it's, it's making sure that, Sorry, I think the the incident that you are are referring to is probably the Jerry Fife incident with his Aldabra tortoise. Is that what really brought some of this to light? Yes, yes. Um, he, um, um, uh, in, in um, this case, he it was one of his um, Galapagos tortoises, but it, he had a, um, uh, a a breeding facility that someone broke into and. In the process, it was a theft that went bad, went wrong, and um, in the process, um, the, the the large female they were trying to steal um, got got ran over by the, the people who were trying to steal it as they were leaving. Um, uh, she sustained, um, uh, um, you know, uh, injuries that you know she ended up succumbing to and, and passed. But um, at the time, they were. Um, you know, the, the, the carapace, the top of shell was severely damaged, you know, and, and in the process of him working to get his animal to the vet, um, you know, they show up, you know, and, and threatening, you know, um, uh, you know, Jerry had called the police. And in these cases, because they have these contracts, they, you know, once everything was dealt with, they call HSUS and, or AZHSUS and, um, they, they show up, you know, he's, he's dealing with um, the animal at the vet, you know, one of his neighbors having to call me and, you know, they're, they're showing up, want to inspect the place, want to see the animal, you know, and, and that's what alert, alerted me to that these contracts even exist. I mean, I, I kind of knew about another issue with, with the rabbit breeder that had happened in Gilbert, but I, I, I wasn't understanding the, these contracts and you know, they, they left a very formal letter basically saying he has 24 hours to report the animal that's been seen by a veterinarian or he will be cited in threatening felonies. They wanted to, to, to see the animal. They wanted to, you know, and, you know, you know, the owner called the police. The owner was working to get the animal vet care. And here he was being victimized again by an organization that was claiming to be good. And, you know, I, I had several meetings, you know, with, with people from, from the, the police department and, and, and um, um, you know, through the lobbyists with, with some representatives and stuff. And I said, you know, if they were offering to transport the animal or offering to help locate a, a, a veterinarian, that is help making threats, you know, they weren't even bail threats, you know, threats of, of, you know, you're going to be cited or charged is a problem. Uh, you know, I, I, again, I, I saw it as victimizing the, the victim. And, and um, so, you know, became one of the coalition's um, um, things we, we really decided we wanted to look into. And we, we've been looking into these contracts and when they're renewed and because they're getting a lot of money for them. And, and my question was, what were they going to do? You know, what made them an expert in tortoise, you know, in in injured tortoise care and stuff. You had a world recognized breeder of Galapagos tortoises working to find, you know, know, he took the animal to Tucson to again, a world recognized reptile veterinarian. And, and, and so what were they going to do that he wasn't doing? 
And, and again, he, he was the owner, you know, it wasn't like the animals found injured. And um, I, I, so through the lobbyists, I, I, I've said, you know, we got to review these contracts. We've got to look at them, um, find out, you know, why they're, they're making these threats. There isn't due process. There isn't, you, you know, a, a, a process, um, uh, a better process for this. Cause it, 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 this, this was a very, very um, bad incident. And, and, it, and it showed some um, uh, really bad character. Um, and, and so, um, um, and, and that was also why I reached out to the Farm Bureau was because, you know, you, you can say, Jerry, like myself, you know, we're, we're, you know, you can call them alternative livestock breeders. You know, we, we raise species that aren't your typical livestock, you know, for food and fiber, but, but we raise animals. And um, so, you know, when I was approaching the, the Farm Bureau, I said, you know, we, we are farmers, we're urban farmers. And, you know, while this wasn't a, a traditional livestock animal, that contract doesn't differentiate. And at first I got a little pushback because it was like, mm-hmm. well, um, you, you know, if it was livestock, it would have went to the Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, that's true. It, it is supposed to go to the Department of Agriculture if it's mm-hmm. a livestock type animal, if the police calls them. But the first thing they did was call the people they had their contract with. So you have a 4-H kid or an FFA kid or, you know, someone vandalizes or does something to an animal at one of these schools. Um, the people who show up may not be the Department of Agriculture. You know, it may be. And, and so that's why for um, in, in these contracts, it should state that there's due process. The, the Gilbert um, rabbit rancher was a little bit different. You know, he was raising them for meat and, and people were upset about it. And, you know, he gets turned in and, and they, they um, confiscate his animals, destroy his cages. And so he can't raise animals anymore. And, you know, it was, there was no due process. It was just take his animals, you know, and, and, and destroy his cages. And, you know, what keeps them from doing that to, to up more and more people, you know, unless someone steps, steps forward and says, this isn't right, you know? And if there was a problem, he sh- there should have been due process. There should have went before a judge should have went, you know, uh, if they felt there was, a, if they felt there was a problem, you know, and, and when I looked back at the case, wasn't there was no food, wasn't any, no water. They were, they, the rabbits were in suspended cages and they felt there was a, a, an accumu- a, a, a more of an accumulation of waste than there should have been. And it wasn't, they were sitting in waste. It wasn't that they were, you know, they felt there was more of an accumulation of, of waste than there should have been. And, and, and then and on top of the barns were conditioned, which in Arizona, that's a big deal, you know? And, and so my question was what an expert, I, I, I just want to know what, what was their background? How do we know they're, experts in, in, in husbandry of rabbits. And, and it was a curiosity question. I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I just wanted to know, you know, because I want to know what, you know, are, you know, when, when USDA shows up, you know, for all of us that are USDA licensed, you know, most of our VMOs are, um, if they're not someone directly out of the industry, they're veterinarians. Um, and you know what I mean? And, and so I, I was curious what, what, um, you know, what, what was the background and the background was, it was an officer, police officer from Gilbert and, um, one of the, one of the folks from the local AZ, um, HSUS and, and they're just like, you know, she knows a lot about animals. I'm like, okay. You know, again, you know, what makes them an expert and what makes them expert in glottis tortoise, what makes them an expert in rabbits. If, if you're, taking animals and claiming that you can get better care. I just want to know how that was determined. And, and, um, and, and so there's that piece of it and then due process, I, you know, the, right. everyone afforded that right or should be afforded that right. 
right? And they probably couldn't answer you as to what their credentials were, or their experience. No one wanted to answer that question. <laughs> but, um, and it's like, it's that for folks, of, you know, that, that one's been buried. Um, but as the coalition looks into it, you know, it's making sure that when these contracts are renewed, that, um, that, that, that is, is being stated in these contracts, that there is um, a due process. So. Yeah, I hope to get Mr. Judd, uh, the rabbit rancher, on the program. I, I've contacted him, and and we've had a few exchanges, um, and so I'm I'm cautiously optimistic we can get him to tell his side of the story. Um, from from your research, James, what uh, what happened to the rabbits that they confiscated? Um, I mean, it was my understanding they they, they adopted them all out. You know, okay. uh, when when. Uh, um, uh, you know, they found homes for them all. Um, and, um, again, you know, I, it was my understanding the root of the problem was, um, he was selling meat rabbits on Craigslist, you know, he was selling rabbits for meat and people didn't like it. Right. Um, it, I don't eat rabbit and, and every day, but Oh, sorry. I just going to say, I, I personally don't eat rabbit every day, but um, my daughter did do 4-H and she raised meat rabbits. And um, because it was a meat rabbit project, we did process some of them and um, uh, we, we actually smoked them and they, they were quite delicious and very nutritious and, as a white meat and you know, an, a vital food source for people around the world, um, you know, something that you can raise with very little impact and uh, very little space. So uh, what a huge tragedy um, you know, for them to deny people that protein source, but also, you know, try to destroy his business. And, and that's, you know, it's, you know, I try to remind people, you know, it, you know, here, um, you, you know, we, Rabbits have gone from being a, a meat source to, you know, pets, you know, and, and almost exclusively and, 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 and in a lot of places, of course, you know, it's still um, uh, eaten in countries. Eating cattle is, you know, just, you know, like, you know, they're, they're, they're worship there. It's not politically correct, you know, and, right. and, and so what's a food source for one, you know, place? Uh, may not be for another. And, and you know, it, it, it comes down to humane, you know, humaneness in the, in the raising and the slaughter of them and, and making, ensuring that that happens. And again, I didn't hear anything about any part of that in, in, um, in, in his case at all. It was, um, and again, when I saw pictures of it, of his place and stuff, I, all I kept thinking was, you know, the, the animals had food, they had water, they had a conditioned barn, they were, elevated off the ground and in, in, in their suspended cages and um, their complaint was accumulation of fecal material on the ground, you know, under the cages. And I'm thinking that that's it. And, you know, that, I, you know, and again, I, you know, it just led me down to the, you know, what, what made them the experts and in, in, in determining that was excessive enough to confiscate the animals um, and, and um, destroyed his cages. I mean, they destroyed his cages. And now, did do you know? Did he end up uh, building again, or is he kind of put out of business for now? You know, I, I really don't know. I, I heard he had attempted to, but it was like they went after him again. I, and I don't I don't know the whole story on that um, uh, uh, case, to be honest. Yeah, no problem. Well, hopefully, I can get Mr. Judd on the on the podcast and hear his side of the um, situation and. And hopefully, you know, with our alliance, Mr. Judd doesn't have to worry about that again and, um, you know, or, or anybody else that wants to come in and humanely, ethically, um, you know, breed and care for animals. So uh, I guess the other thing I was just going to ask is, uh, you know, what's on the horizon for you? That's always a good question. <laughs> um, you know, we, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, you always are trying to, um, you know, work work with animals that you enjoy. You know, we've, we've added the kangaroos. We've been um, playing with them uh, a lot um, of late. Um, 
uh, enjoying the animals that, that we currently have. Um, I, I work with a lot of um, parrots. You know, I'd love to work with more. Um, I, I, I see so many species of, of um, I, we work with a lot of Amazons and macaws and it's just, they're, they're disappearing it, you know, especially Amazons. It, it's impressive how, you know, there used to be so many available to us and, and so many breeders and um, aviculture in general, just seems to be a, a dying trade, you know, and, and, and I'd like to um, continue working with all that stuff and, you know, hopefully encourage others to, to do it, do the same. That's great. And, you know, you mentioned Mickey Olson's passing and Mickey was, um, you know, such a force in our industry. And um, luckily he he survived by his wife, Connie, who does an amazing job breeding birds. But you're right. There's totally, um, you know, fewer and fewer people that are doing that. And um, and it it definitely is a labor of love, um, you know, what it takes to raise um, hand rear some of those uh, birds. And, and, and animals, uh, such a labor of love oh, yeah. and, and, and lost art. And so hopefully we can instill in some younger people and generations, you know, the, that passion and, and get more people, um, you know, working with those species. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with me tonight. And we, I enjoyed having you on the podcast. Uh, always enjoy conversations with you. And um, believe it or not, uh, you know, what you and your wife are accomplishing is um, super inspirational. And, um, you know, just it's so good to have people like yourself in the industry and, uh, you know, keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you too. All right. Till next time. Thanks for listening to the Desert Ranch Podcast. We hope we gave you a good look into the lives of those that care for land and livestock far past the nine to five lifestyle. Until we talk again, have a fantastic week.